I'm Kendall Giles, and welcome to the Techno Slipstream. The goal of the Techno Slipstream podcast is to explore the intersection of science, technology, philosophy, and culture. This podcast is just getting started, but my initial idea is to do deep dives on research, books, news, and articles with a focus on exploring the complex and powerful technologies being developed and released into the world with sometimes beneficial but often unintended consequences. In today's episode, to kickstart the podcast, I begin a series of deep dives into automation. Now, as we explore this topic area, I'm sure we'll develop a more nuanced understanding of what we mean by automation. But for now, you can think of automation as the use of technologies to automate manufacturing or other work processes that were once performed by humans. I think this is a topic of interest to a lot of people, especially with all the news articles talking about how artificial intelligence, robots, and other technologies will soon put human workers out of a job. Now, that's what the news articles are saying. So the point of this deep dive series is to better understand the history behind automation, what forces and technologies are at play in society regarding how we work and live, and how automation may actually affect us going forward. Before we begin episode number one in the Techno Slipstream podcast, if you want more information about the podcast, about the Techno Slipstream project, or about me, you can head over to the main TechnoSlipstream website, which is technoslipstream.com. Techno, T-E-C-H-N-O, Slipstream, S-L-I-P-S-T-R-E-A-M.com. <laughs> there, you can find links to articles. There's a newsletter you can sign up for, and you can support this podcast by heading to the Patreon page and more. As I said, this is the first episode, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Now, I may change this process in the future, but for right now, if you sign up for the email newsletter, you'll be able to reply with your feedback, suggestions, or interesting topics that you think I might want to cover in future episodes. So with that out of the way, let's dig in. Now, as a lead-in for the motivation for why I think automation is something relevant for us to talk about and better understand, consider that he's currently running as mayor of New York but in the year 2020, Andrew Yang centered his U.S. presidential campaign on the threat of automation, that AI and robots are taking all our jobs and causing the social and economic pains that we're currently experiencing. But Andrew is not alone promoting these fears. In February 2021, consulting giant McKinsey predicted that as many as 25% more workers may lose their jobs post-COVID pandemic in part due to automation. In fact, in 2013, researchers from Oxford University predicted that as much as 47% of total U.S. employment is at risk of automation. And in August 2020, Time magazine even ran an article with the breathless title, Millions of Americans Have Lost Jobs in the Pandemic and Robots and AI Are Replacing Them Faster Than Ever. So is all this hype about automation true? While the automation topic area is much too large to cover in just one episode, in fact, as I mentioned, we'll, we'll do a series focusing on automation. 
There's a new book out by Aaron Beninov called Automation and the Future of Work. And in his book, Aaron investigates this exact question. So in episode number one of the Techno Slipstream podcast, we're going to do a deep dive into Aaron's book, Automation and the Future of Work. First, who is Aaron Beninov? Well, he's currently a postdoctoral researcher at Humboldt University of Berlin, and he earned his PhD in history from UCLA in 2015 with a thesis titled, A Global History of Unemployment, Surplus Populations in the World Economy, 1949 to 2010. His research interests include 19th and 20th century global economic history, economic development, labor market dynamics, unemployment, and inequality. So clearly, thinking about technology, automation, employment, and society is entirely in his domain of expertise. Now, Automation and the Future of Work is Aaron's first book, and it came out in November 2020 by Verso Books. It's rather short, coming in at about 160 pages, with about 40 of those pages being chapter notes and an index, but there's a preface, six chapters, and a postscript. I read the Kindle version, though it also comes in hardcover. Now, if you're like me, I suspect you'll devour the book in one or a couple sittings, as I find the topic very interesting and Aaron's writing style is engaging. So let's dig into the book. The book sets the stage by reviewing today's hype around automation, which Aaron politely calls the automation discourse. This can be summarized, as I alluded to in the introduction, by thinking about the major components of Andrew Yang's platform. Workers are being replaced by machines, sometimes referred to as technological unemployment. This will lead to a largely automated society where machines, artificial intelligence, and robots who look like the Terminator will take over all our jobs. This may sound almost like utopia since if the robots are doing all the work, we can all just kick back at the beach. But since our current society, which is based on free market capitalism, requires humans to do jobs to earn a paycheck, if humans must work to earn money to live, and if we create technologies to take away our jobs, then instead of a utopia, we've just innovated a nightmare, dystopian future for ourselves. So the main solution proposed by the automation theorists is that we humans must receive from the government a universal basic income, or UBI. And so with free money now coming in through the mail, we can return to our utopia lounge shares at the beach. Now, Aaron makes clear that though Andrew Yang is campaigning on this automation scenario as this platform, Andrew did not come up with this automation discourse. In fact, Aaron reviews a number of futurists and economists who have for years been beating the coming modern automation drum. Folks such as Martin Ford, Eric Brynjolfsson, Andrew McAfee, and others. Now, I say modern automation to refer to the hysteria around automation raised in the late 20th and early 21st century, stuff that's happening right now as you read the news or look on social media. But interestingly, Aaron 
shows that these automation fears are not new. We've had multiple waves of automation hysteria throughout history, such as the waves in the early 19th and early 20th centuries. So talk about automation seems new and alarming now because we now include terms like artificial intelligence and machine learning and robots. And because we know what a mess robots like the Terminator can make when they are upset. But there is an automation historical record to set the context for today's automation concerns. So here's the core of the book's argument. Yes, there are reasons for concern about our current economy. If you look around us right now, there's sputtering economic growth in countries all around the world. There's a growing divide between the haves and the have-nots. There's an increased sense of anxiety by workers unable to find good jobs that pay living wages especially coming out of the pandemic. And there's growing unemployment. And yes, some jobs are being changed through automation. However, contrary to the Andrew Yangs of the world, the root cause is not automation, the book maintains, but an ongoing and deepening economic stagnation due to a global deindustrialization that has been taking place for decades. Moreover, the continuing and deepening low demand for labor will result not in mass unemployment, but something that's called persistent underemployment. Okay, so let's unpack this. There are a couple of trends that we can look at in order to better understand how Aaron came to these conclusions, and he goes through them (laughs) all in his book. But just to summarize, if we look back in history, say to the share of income going to labor as opposed to corporate profits, say from 1980 to 2015, we can see that for decades in the G7 countries, that's the US, Japan, Italy, Germany, France, Canada, and the UK, labor's share of income has long been declining. For example, Japan in particular seems to have suffered the worst decline with a high of about 72% in 1980 to about 55% in 2015. Now, I'm eyeballing these stats from a graph in the book, and these stats are from the OECD, or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Another trend is an increasing inequality in wage growth in favor of managers and CEOs, meaning production and non-supervisory workers' wages are not increasing as rapidly. We've been hearing for years, for example, about how the infamous one percenters have been receiving large income increases while those on the lower end of the pay scales have not. Now, automation theory proponents like Andrew Yang say these declines are indicative of automation technologies taking away workers' jobs. Some economists also say that, at least in high-income countries, these trends are because of companies outsourcing jobs to lower-income countries. But both of these arguments can be countered by considering labor's global deindustrialization. The U.S. experienced large industrialization boom across many industries in the late 1800s to early 1900s, leading to a large increase in the number of workers in manufacturing jobs, and other countries followed similarly. However, over the last 50 years, we've been experiencing deindustrialization, which means There's been a consistent decrease in the number of manufacturing jobs in terms of total employment. As a concrete example from the book, 
Manufacturing employed 22% of all U.S. workers in 1970, but only 8% by 2017. And other high-income countries saw similar declines. So does that mean those countries just ship manufacturing jobs to low-income countries, so-called offshoring? Well, sure, some jobs have been outsourced overseas. But interestingly, in these high-income countries, offshoring their manufacturing to low-income countries, those high-income countries have actually seen increases in the volume of their manufacturing production. For example, it's doubled in the U.S., France, and other high-income countries between 1970 and 2017. This means that high-income countries who offshore their manufacturing jobs are actually producing more goods with fewer workers. So how can that be? The automation theorists claim that this is due to increases in productivity due to automation. In other words, with automation increasing the productivity of each worker, you need fewer workers to produce more goods. But this explanation is suspect because of something known as the productivity paradox. If you look at the data, manufacturing productivity growth isn't there. It can't be found. Labor productivity growth has actually fallen in the U.S. and other countries since post-war peaks. So, Automation theorists maintain that rising productivity due to automation is the explanation for fewer workers being able to produce more goods. But if productivity actually has not been increasing and in fact has been decreasing, what's going on? In the book, Aaron gets into some numbers and equations, but the basic idea is that for a given sector of the economy, the rate of growth of employment is equal to the rate of growth of output minus the rate of growth of labor productivity. For example, you need more employees to crank out more automobiles, employee growth for output growth, unless you improve the employee productivity. But if you look at these numbers over time, you can see a very disturbing trend. Over time, as we just discussed, productivity growth has been declining. However, the output growth has been declining much faster than productivity growth. And if you recall the formula, the rate of growth of employment is equal to the rate of growth of output minus the rate of growth of labor productivity. So if the output growth rate drops faster than the productivity growth rate, then the employment growth rate must decline as well. In fact, across many economic sectors and across many high-income countries, the employment growth rate has actually gone negative. So automation theory and technological innovation do not explain this behavior, especially because this deindustrialization trend has affected not only the high-income countries, but also the middle and low-income countries as well. In other words, manufacturing growth has declined worldwide. In the book, Aaron argues that this worldwide decline is due to something called overcapacity, which means you can manufacture more goods than the market can bear. The problem is that we've saturated the world with manufacturing capacity. The U.S. gave their manufacturing technologies to Germany and Japan and other countries to help them rebuild after the war. But this spread continued to other countries around the world, resulting in overcapacity. The worldwide market for goods is saturated, which means Firms have increased competition for market share, which means profits fall, 
which leads to lower rates of investment, which leads to lower output growth rates. Manufacturing job loss, the book argues, is therefore due to manufacturing overcapacity, not automation or technological innovation. So this was just a quick summary of Aaron's argument about manufacturing overcapacity. He goes into a lot more detail in the book, including citations and references. You can follow if you want to go down that rabbit hole. But let's keep looking at the problem. If we believe the manufacturing industries are shedding workers due to slowing growth and overcapacity, wouldn't automation still be a better explanation in general? The answer, Aaron suggests in the book, is again, no. We are not in a stagnant economy because of technological innovation and automation. A better explanation, he suggests, is the fact that with the decline of industrialization, which was a huge growth engine for so long, with global deindustrialization, we've not yet seen any other part of the economy emerge as a replacement growth engine. With no reason for companies to spend on new fixed capital assets, they already have the manufacturing equipment they need, and there's nothing else new on the scene that they need to invest in. Companies instead are turning to what the book refers to as financializing capital, buybacks and shares, or paying out dividends, or trading derivatives, or trying to outplay foreign currency exchanges. In other words, companies are not creating new avenues of production. They're not spending on research and innovation. This means they're, they're focusing on financial gains. This means there is declining labor demand, not just in manufacturing, but economy-wide. Output is down in manufacturing as well as other sectors too, such as services. And these trends are happening, not just in high-income countries, but worldwide. There's a chart in the book compiling World Trade Organization international trade statistics on world merchandise exports, production, and GDP. And since about 1960, there's been a steady trend of decreasing manufacturing growth rates as well as GDP growth rates. It's almost as if the world's capitalist growth engine is running out of gas. And so if this is the right model for the economy, employment growth being equal to output growth minus productivity growth, and if we're seeing a drastic reduction in output growth due to manufacturing overcapacity, then the book suggests the result is exactly what we're seeing in the world today. Not so much long-run technological unemployment, as automation theorists predict, but chronic labor underemployment. This means people will be taking jobs with cut rate or low wages, part-time jobs, informal jobs, just finding the best work that they can. We essentially have surplus labor on a world scale, which will only further increase job insecurity, income inequality, appeals to nationalism, and social unrest. The big question, then, is what to do about this situation going forward. The book reviews two classic approaches, one of which is that Governments could raise levels of public investments to stimulate demand for more labor. And we see these initiatives being attempted now in the U.S. at the federal level, where the U.S. government is trying to infuse a lot of needed infrastructure spending into the economy. Another possible solution for labor under demand would be to reduce the length of the work week. So a 15-hour work week instead of a 40-hour work week, for example. 
Automation theorists propose a third way, often labeled UBI, or Universal Basic Income. The basic idea with UBI is that in a society where labor is in under-demand, the government could provide a basic income to each citizen, whether they're working or not. Now, there are obvious benefits to UBI. Poverty goes away, in addition to providing a sense of security to those in tenuous employment situations. However, with any form of public investment, there will always be pushback from private employers since public investments take away the company's power in being able to control their employees and keep wages low. For example, over the few months of the pandemic in the U.S., with the COVID-19 relief checks going out, employers have been blaming the people receiving the relief checks for reasons why workers don't want to come back to work for the below poverty level salaries these companies are offering instead of considering that maybe it's the employers should actually be able to hire employees if they offered livable wages. The book goes into quite a bit of detail exploring UBI. UBI is not a new suggested solution. Aaron points out, for example, that in the U.S., UBI has been considered as far back as 1797, where Thomas Paine suggested a form of UBI as a way to help ensure everyone has a chance to participate in the economy. The book explores both conservative and liberal proponents of UBI in the past, but the attractive part of the UBI idea is that it's a step towards a goal of what some refer to as a post-scarcity world. Now, if you're familiar with Star Trek, the Star Trek universe where human needs are met, you know, in part due to a technology called the replicator, which can essentially 3D print any food, drink, or object. In the Star Trek universe, the pursuit of money was not necessary. It was not needed for survival. Humans could pursue their own interests, such as exploring the universe, if they chose to. The problem is that UBI is just a step towards this post-scarcity utopia. It's not the complete solution. Giving everyone a basic income does not resolve the larger social issues that we have in our capitalist economy, where the power remains in the hands of the capitalists, the managers, the CEOs, the one percenters. So even though the automation theorists may be giving technological progress too much credit and explaining today's economy, they do bring worthwhile attention to considerations of this post-scarcity future. Aaron concludes his book by considering ways that we might achieve this post-scarcity goal, where we have the healthcare, the education, the basic needs met so that we can thrive as humans, where we can all have the freedom and possibility of pursuing our dreams no matter where, where in the universe that might take us. However, while the automation theorists focus on how technology will get us there, if we just simply automate all the jobs, then the humans will have infinite leisure time. Aaron focuses instead on tackling the larger, more fundamental issue of resolving the problems with our capitalist economy. Now, here's where the book becomes more aspirational rather than explanatory. Various writers, theorists, and philosophers have tried to envision post-scarcity societies over the years. Going back as far as Thomas More's Utopia, written in 1516, which is thought to be one of the first depictions in writing of an idealized society. To other thinkers who've written about utopian societies like Karl Marx, John Dewey, 
W.E.B. Dubois, and Carl Polanyi. Aaron, in his book, sketches a possible way forward if we want to realize this goal in an economy where we have persistent labor under demand. It's a bit notional, so please bear with me for a moment. But Aaron suggests that we first need to focus on what he calls cooperative justice. Each of us, in order to survive, has certain minimal needs that must be met. But in today's world, some of us are able to provide for ourselves, but some of us are locked out of being able to participate in our capitalist economy. So rather than having a society split into haves and have-nots, the idea behind cooperative justice is that each of us, each day, would be able to perform common labors. So imagine all the work needed for society to function would be pulled together and then divided out amongst each person based on their aptitudes and interests. The idea is that with everyone working, especially with the help of certain technologies, automating some tasks, here's a good use for automation, we could accomplish the work needed in a few hours of work each day. Aaron develops this idea in more detail in the book, but the basic idea is is to transform and strengthen our shared responsibilities and obligations towards one another. Again, this is a very notional idea, but such a mentality shift, and I can't, again, stress how big of a shift this seems to be to me, where each day for the last year, for example, I've seen grown adults become violent over requests to wear paper masks amid a global pandemic. And we've been making these requests to have them think about their fellow citizens to help prevent the spread of a virus. And that's been extremely difficult. (laughs) But if we could pull off this mentality shift, then all society's basic needs would be met for everyone. As the author says in the book, rather than us having to ask, how am I going to keep living We could then instead be able to ask, what am I going to do with the time I have alive? In other words, with our basic needs met after working just a few hours a day, that would free up a lot of time. Here, the possibilities are endless. Imagine, instead of our world where work is the focus, the focus would become on just being a human. Each person would have the time and the freedom and the ability to pursue their passions. In the book, the author proposes this as an interesting thought experiment rather than as a prescriptive path for achieving this goal. But for some reason, this reminds me of the John Lennon quote, war is over if you want it. In other words, how we achieve that goal is really up to us as a society. We can choose if we want a post-scarcity future. What sort of future do we want to have? We have choices. Technology won't necessarily get us there, nor will corporations, nor will governments. What's left? The author says social movements are critical for helping us realize these utopian dreams. So in the end, automation and the future of work could have been titled, Automation Will Not Save Us. If we truly want a better future, the pathway to this utopia depends more on social activism than technological innovation. Technology is not neutral, so future technologies will continue to be created, as they have in the past, to help ensure the lock on power enjoyed by today's elite 1%, unless there is proactive democratic involvement by those throughout society, especially labor. This book makes a convincing case that automation is not the 
Deus Ex Machina, solution being hyped by some in business and Silicon Valley. However, exactly how to create that better future remains elusive. The work towards this goal, though, continues. And with that, we wrap up our first episode of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information or want to send suggestions or interesting topics, head over to technoslipstream.com where you can sign up for the email newsletter. I send these out occasionally and you can then reply to the newsletter email. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head over to our Patreon page to sign up. So thanks again. And until next time, be well.